Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down tonight for my CNN Axe Files show with Elizabeth Warren, the Massachusetts senator and candidate for president. Whatever your feelings about her, there is no doubt that she is a person of strong convictions. She's on a mission, and that mission predated her career in politics as an author, as a law professor, as a writer. She's shown a bright light on the plight of the middle class and the power of organized money in shaping policies that sometimes conspires against them. It's a perspective that flows from her own life experience uh, growing up in Oklahoma, her years as a single mother. We talked about all of that and this very competitive race uh, that she's entered for president and the man she hopes to replace, Donald Trump. And one additional note, we'll be going to a one-show-a-week format, uh, starting with this show, uh, and we will have more news about the podcast coming up soon. Elizabeth Warren, so good to see you. We're here in Washington. We're in this library because we thought that would be an appropriate place, given how you've spent most of, uh, of your life to be in a library. And I'm told no one's going to shush us while okay. we're here. So that's good. good. You know, you've moved to Washington twice in your life, uh-huh. once as a young woman. Uh-huh. And then later in your life, you came here as a Harvard professor, as a part-time chair of an oversight uh-huh. commission uh, when the financial crisis broke. Um, that's when we got uh, to know each other. You write in this great autobiography, you wrote this great memoir about the experience of uh, going to The Daily Show uh, yep. uh, with, uh, John, when Jon Stewart was the host. And you were a bit nervous. Yes. And what happened? So remember, this is in the financial crisis. I've never done any part of this. And the so media stuff. the media stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and so and yet we got to talk to the American people about what's going on, because the giant financial institutions are just having money shoveled to them mm-hmm. through the bailout the and through the Fed, through the back door. And most of the folks who are talking about this don't want people to understand. There's a lot of conversation around this sort of, some fringe that come from and uh, just trust us, we'll make this happen. So I figure my job is to try to bring some accountability to this. And that meant every month we wrote a report and tried to do it in English and then talked to as many people as we could. So this is kind of the first time I've ever gotten out and done a lot of press. I get invited to be on The Daily Show. Now I'm a huge Daily Show fan. Yes. Huge Which was, It wasn't an easy interview. I, I, John Stewart is a brilliant guy, and he's an incisive questioner, and it, it's not easy. So I'm figuring out just how not easy this is <laughs> going to be after I've said yes, after I've gotten myself to New York, after I'm sitting in this little room 
and everybody's getting ready and they've fussed around with your hair and makeup and so on. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is going to be really scary and hard. And I go in the little bathroom part and throw up. <laughs> Good response to stress, right? Clean myself up, take a drink of water, and head back out and do the interview. So politics was not, did not come naturally no. to you. And I remember we, we actually lived in the same apartment building in Washington at that time. And I remember going over there when people were urging you to, uh, to run for the Senate in Massachusetts. And we, we had a little discussion. It was, uh, it was uh, your husband, Bruce, and Otis. Our dog. Your dog, uh -huh. the uh, ubiquitous. That's right. A gi wise Gentle counselor. giant. That's right. Uh, and we talked about it. And you were very clear that you were wary. Oh, yeah of this, that you weren't sure that this was the life that you wanted. How did you get from there? Because it's just 10 years ago, uh -huh. from there to here. So I already knew what I wanted to do. I've known what I wanted to do since I was in second grade. I wanted to teach school. I, David, this is what I've done all my life. I used to line my dollies up. You know, I, I want you to know I was tough but fair. Um, it's all I ever wanted to do. And you were special ed. And when I graduated from college, my first job in teaching public school yeah. and taught special needs kids. Yeah, and as a parent of a special needs child, I appreciate that. Well, and you know, it's, I, it's calling. And probably I would have done it forever. But by the time we hit the end of that first year, I was visibly pregnant. And back in those days, the principal just didn't ask me to come back. Mm -hmm. And so... I'm at home with a little baby, and I get this crazy idea that I'm gonna go off to law school. Mm -hmm. So I end up at a public law school, costs $450 a semester, and after what always felt like about an hour and a half of practice, I end up right back in teaching. Mm -hmm. And I love teaching, I, I mean, I just love it. And my whole time that I spent in teaching, the research I did, the work I did was always around one central question, and that is what's happening to working families? Why is the path for people who work hard, for people who've who give it their all. Why is the path getting rockier, and, steeper? And, and I do want to talk about that because you did, you know, decades of research and it struck yep. me it was like a, an ongoing focus group that you were able to hear from people all over the country. All over. But um, let's just return to, to a second to that meeting with, uh, with Bruce and Otis yes. about whether you should run for the U.S. Senate. And you, you had these misgivings and uh, po you, know, you, you weren't at all sure that politics was the life you wanted. Well, but you are in it now. I mean, you right. are in it up to your eyeballs. And do you feel comfortable now uh, as uh, in politics? So, but that's where I was, I was going to head this, is to say when the decision came to me, I, I spent a year setting up the consumer agency working for mm -hmm. President Obama, and I was headed back to, to Massachusetts. I was going back into teaching and going back into teaching full-time and happy to be going back into teaching. But... What was in front of me was the chance to fight hard for those same families for whom the path was just getting rockier, just getting steeper, just getting harder. 
And the Senate race was a way to be able to do that. Well, not to mention that those folks in the Senate weren't all that receptive to you. <laughs> so one way no. to get their attention is to run and become uh, a member of the body. Well, you know, that really was true. Uh, because what had happened was I had pushed hard for this consumer agency. The president, President Obama, had pushed for it. It made it ultimately into Dodd-Frank. The president had asked me to come and stand the agency up. I'd done a year of that. And frankly, the Republicans had made clear that, man, they still had it out for the agency. Yeah. You remember this, just bang, bang, bang. Right. And how could I best defend it? Well, one way was to go to the Senate, to sit on that banking committee, and to say, that the, the consumer agency is going to have somebody who's going to watch out for it, somebody who really will step in front of a moving train to say you are not going to dismantle this agency, you're not going to tear it apart. Four years ago, a lot of people urged you to consider running for yeah. president. Uh, you didn't run for president. Uh, Bernie Sanders ran for mm -hmm. president. Uh, he became a thing. Mm -hmm. He did He did very well, and, and, and running on many of the same uh, issues and themes that you are uh, associated with. Do you, do you have any regrets about not having done this then? No. You can't go back. You know, it, Bernie and I have been friends for a long, long time. Sure, far before I ever thought I was going to be in the electoral end of politics. And I get out there every day. Bernie gets out there every day. And so do a lot of other good people. And fight for what we believe in. And that's what I do every single day. Someday, Move it maybe, forward. Someday in the near future, you're probably going to be standing in the same place and, and making an appeal. There are, I think most of your caucus and dozens of other people are running uh, for president. And the thing that's on people's minds is, de the minds of Democrats is who can, who can defeat Donald Trump. Yeah. If you look at polling, that's the that's the, the issue that most motivates voters, whether that ends up being the case or not, whether it becomes more nuanced. That's what they say. Why you? Why you and not Bernie or Biden or Beto or someone whose name doesn't begin with B? So look, I, I, can't, I can't speak for their case. They, they should do that. Yeah. I don't want to speak for anybody we'll, we'll else. Get them all, here. all I can tell you is what I think the central issue in 2020 is, and that's who government should work for. Right now, we have a Washington that works great for the rich and the powerful, for the wealthy and the well-connected. It just doesn't work for much of anyone else. And that's the fight I've been in pretty much all of my life, is how to make this government, how to make this country work better, not for those at the top, but work better for everyone else. You know, I saw your announcement speech, and I've heard you speak many times, and you talk about the system being rigged. Yeah. And I know that um, it would be an understatement to say that you're not a particular fan of the president. I think loud, na uh, nasty, thin-skinned fraud uh -huh. are some words that may have been used uh -huh. uh, to describe him at one point uh, by you. But there is this one striking familiarity, at least in the use of language, because that was what he ran on, that the system was rigged. I suspect that he, uh, that you guys have a different idea about who's doing the rigging. But tell me about that, because it is kind of interesting that you share this common language. Right. And he did run on that. And then he got in and did a 180-degree turn. So, for example, 
He talked a lot during the campaign about Goldman Sachs, then turned around and put enough Goldman Sachs bankers in his administration that they could open their own branch office. And actually, just think about one of them in particular, Gary Cohn. So here's a guy who's at Goldman Sachs, big position there. He joins the Trump administration, and he basically is going to have one job, and that is to try to write and ram through a tax bill. So what does Goldman Sachs do for Gary on the way out the door? Answer, they give him, give him about a quarter of a billion dollars on his way out the door. He then takes a job in Washington in the administration, economic advisor. He writes a tax bill that then rewards Goldman Sachs to the tune of about a quarter of a billion dollars in the first year and then turns out to be the gift that keeps on giving in terms of tax breaks. That is rigging the system. That is corruption right at the heart of this government. You know, you think of how it could even be legal that Goldman Sachs could offer a pre-bribe to somebody like Gary Cohn and with this revolving door, never clear to the American people. So is this guy actually working for the taxpayers? Is he working for the American public? Or is he just lining the pockets of his former and maybe future employers? And you have a, you have a proposal to ban uh, a, lot of these, a lot of these uh, kinds of activities. Uh, but I, I have to tell you, I, I hear you speaking. Ringing in my ear is uh, what one of your colleagues told me who has affection for you. Uh-huh. And he said, I, I told Elizabeth she has to find a way to kick around capitalists without sounding like she hates capitalism. Look, I can't imagine that Gary Cohn walking out the door from a big Wall Street place like Goldman Sachs with a quarter of a billion dollars in his pocket and into government is considered good capitalism. I support markets. I see the kinds of things that markets can produce when they work. But markets without rules, markets that let people like Goldman Sachs capture our government, markets that right now let the drug industry call all the shots instead of people who need to get prescriptions filled, uh, let the oil industry call all the shots instead of people who see climate change bearing down on us, that's, that's corruption, that's capture of our government by the richest and most powerful around us. You. Um you describe this in sort of Manichaean terms of these powerful moneyed interests versus the interests of everyday people. And you use um, almost martial language. There's going to be blood and teeth on the floor and so on. And I know you grew up with three brothers. I did. So that may be older brothers. That may be a piece of this. Uh, but you also view this in those terms uh, uh, that this is kind of uh, a war. Now, let, let me ask you. Um, uh, you describe yourself in this book and frequently as a fighter. Mm-hmm. In fact, you said that the one thing that you can do, you, you weren't a good athlete, you couldn't play an instrument, you couldn't sing, but you could fight. And then you, so you joined the debate team right. uh, at school uh, when you were a kid. Uh, but is there any, or do you have any worries uh, that after uh, four years of Donald Trump, 
the country may be looking for a, a different kind of tone, that uh, a more unifying and hopeful tone? So I find fighting for what you believe in to be enormously hopeful because the ultimate, uh, ultimate vision of this is we can see what's broken, we can see what we need to do, and we together can actually get out there and do it. We have the power to make change. Look, look at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. People told me, never happen, don't even try, give up before you even start. And they made a good point. They said the banks will never permit this, and as you may remember, the banks spent more, giant banks spent more than a million dollars a day for over a year lobbying against the financial reforms, but particularly that consumer agency. I believe you get in the fight and you fight for what you believe in. And we're going to talk, we, we're going to talk more about that consumer agency, so and, I don't want you to think glad, you're a disciplined candidate. But no, no, but, but, I, the, I but want, the point I, is the optimism of fighting, mm -hmm. David. If, you if can, you'd you said, oh, results. let's do it, you produce results, and the results matter to people. Mm -hmm. That agency has already forced giant financial institutions to return more than $12 billion directly to people they cheated. It's handled a million and a half complaints. It's government that actually works for real people. And that happened not just because I fought for it, but because a lot of people fought for it. Let me ask it. you a political kind of hack type question, uh, which is, of this, 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 is it harder for a woman, is it harder for a woman uh, to be a fighter, to take that kind of uh, stance? Uh, because, you know, the people you hear, well, you know, Elizabeth Warren, she's polarizing. Um, would they be saying that about, they don't, yeah, you say a lot of the same things uh, that we hear Bernie Sanders say. People don't use that language uh, about him as much as they do about you. Look, I don't know. I'm not a pundit on TV, uh, so I'll leave that to the expert yeah. pundits on TV. But because we do so well. But I'll tell you this. You get out and fight for what you believe in. People say what they say. They'll find something that they're going to criticize. They'll attack in any direction they can. But at the end of the day, I really feel quite blessed to be able to be here to fight for people who just want a chance to be able to buy, build something. I meet people at town halls who will hold out their hands and say, $65,200, it's the amount of student loan debt they've got. $58,000, $106,000. Two kids in college don't know what we're going to mm -hmm. do. I get a chance every single day to be here in the fight to say we're going we're gonna to reduce the student loan debt burden. Mm -hmm. We're going to make it possible for kids to go to school without getting crushed by student loan debt. That's about building opportunities. Right. I, and I, I'm, I'm going to want to talk about that as well in, in the context of our politics today. But I, I have to ask you, because as we speak, it's sort of an interesting week. Uh, Michael Cohen's coming up to Capitol Hill. The Mueller report is on its way. Uh, I know that these are the issues that animate you. 
How much are those things going to intrude on the discussion in the uh, campaign of 2020? I mean, you said the other day that you didn't that that Donald Trump might not be a free man by 2020, which seemed like a kind of bracing shot. Well, is that any surprise? I mean, look at the number of investigations that are swirling around him. We've never had anything like this before in history. But I also believe in 2020, a big part of what this election is going to be about is what it is we're fighting for. What is our vision of what this country should be and how this government should function? Are, are we really content to have a government that works better and better for a thinner and thinner slice at the top? Or do we actually think that we should make our government and our country work better for everybody else? But what is your, th I mean, he is going to be the first president who live tweets the opposing party's primaries. So yes. he is going to be inserting himself regularly. You've felt a little of the brunt of yep. that, but I don't think he's going to limit his, uh, his attention to you. Uh, how, how best to deal with that? Should, it, should you engage? He seems to enjoy that. Yeah, so look. The way I see it is, yeah, you've got to push back. You never let bullies run over you. But we've got to get out there and talk about what we believe in. That's what I think. That's what I do every chance I get. I get out and talk about how we now have a system that is rigged for the rich and the powerful, mm -hmm. how it happened, who captured this system. And you referred to it earlier. I've got the biggest anti-corruption bill since Watergate. Those are the kind of changes that we need to make. And here's the hopefulness of it. We don't just have to give up and say, you know, those guys always win. They're always going to win. They're always going to own the game. My view is, no, we don't have to let them. We have power. We can change the law. We can push back on the influence of money in Washington. We can take back our country. Oh, you do have... Uh a very bold set of policies. And I think everybody would agree who's watching this race. You, you have your uh, wealth tax on fortunes of over uh, $50 million that uh, yes. could produce uh, close to $3 trillion over uh, 10 years. You've, uh, you've got a universal child care proposal. You've got this green, uh, you, you've signed on to the Green New Deal resolution. I've got you've a housing to, proposal. Yeah, I've right. got an accountable capitalism. But here's, here's what I want to ask yeah. you, because you're a student of history. We're here in a library. Uh -huh. uh, there was uh, a progressive era after the Gilded Age uh -huh. uh, that Teddy Roosevelt led. And, you know, 40-hour work week and, uh, and anti-child labor. Laws, anti break up laws. the big monopolies. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then there was another progressive era that Franklin Roosevelt led mm -hmm. after, the, uh, after the Great uh, Depression. The difference now is we've had a long period of time in which there's been a concerted effort to degrade government and all institutions. And what you see now is people have little faith in most institutions. The military may be uh, just uh, an exception uh, to that. So the question is, how do you move a very, very big, expensive uh, agenda uh, through this Congress that you're very well familiar with or one that will be similarly constituted uh, in an environment in which people just don't trust government uh, to deliver. Well, so let me answer this at two levels. The first one is when you talk about a big, expensive agenda, 
remember the wealth tax, the part that starts by saying we're going to put a 2% tax on fortunes for uh, the money they have above $50 million. That would, for example, fully fund universal child care and early education, zero to five, make but, an investment in our youngest kids, and still have $2 trillion left over. So this is not like just pie in the sky. This is real stuff that we could do. But you, you ask a fundamental question, and that is, who actually is going to have the power in Washington? And that's what I believe the election of 2020 is going to be all about. It's why I believe we've got to build from the grassroots, that this is going to be face-to-face, neighbor-to-neighbor, friend-to-friend, person-to-person across this country. We have to build a foundation of people who are engaged in democracy again. And it's happening out there, David. People who have come off the sidelines. I, I was in Georgia. Uh, what would it be, a little over a week ago. And a woman came up to me and said, she was in her 70s, and she said, this is my first political event. She said, I've decided it's not enough anymore just to vote. And now I'm off the sidelines. And I said, welcome, because that's what's been happening. You know, I went to the inauguration. I saw Donald Trump, with my own eyes, watched him sworn in on, uh, in January of 2017. And I remember going back to Massachusetts that night and thinking, God, they could repeal health care for tens of millions of people right. by next Friday. Right. Because they have the House, they have the Senate, they have the White House, and we have no way to stop them. They have the votes. What have we got left? And the answer is we've got our voices, we've got our engagement. The next day was the largest protest rally yeah. in the history of the world. Yeah. And the big question from the pundits was, yeah, but will they still be here in a month? And the answer was it was more people in a month. Will they still be here in a year? And the answer is more. Will they still be here by the time of the elections in 2018? And the answer was yes. We're, we're growing a democracy that works. And we've got to do it from the bottom up. We do that, we take back our government, we take back our country. You know, your colleague, Michael Bennett, yeah. uh, was in Iowa the other day, uh-huh. uh, along with, uh, as I said, most of your caucus. Uh-huh. And uh, one of the things he said was uh, that you can't be progressive unless you produce progress. And it was a really good point, which is uh, that you have to build consensus and embrace compromise so you can move progress forward. And I thought when I saw that about the Affordable Care Act, I thought about the financial reform that you were so instrumental in, both imperfect imperfect Mm -hmm. pieces of legislation. But there were people who who said to President Obama, do not sign the Affordable Care Act unless there's a public option. Better to have nothing than that. And I meet people every day. I just met a young man the other day whose child was a beneficiary grievously ill, the beneficiary of the Affordable Care Act. And I'm thinking, how would uh, I personally have faced that father if I had said, you know what, it wasn't good enough, so we weren't going to do it. And isn't that an important lesson that people need to embrace, that you may not get uh, everything you want? You may not get uh, the wealth tax, but you may get something that will move 
progress forward. So, you know, look, there are always judgment calls in this. We didn't get 100% of what we wanted in the consumer agency. Do you remember what I was do. left out? It was the auto dealers, right? right. And I you know where the, biggest, you about it. Yeah. where the biggest abuses are right now in consumer lending mm -hmm. uh, is in the auto finance industry uh, because they got a little wedge carved out. But dang, that agency was able to do a lot of good. We're Look, and, and, and there's one other point, though, you've got to remember on this. Yes, you have to think about what we can you don't have to have perfection, but you also have to pay attention to where the people are. The wealth tax, for example. Man, you walk around the halls of Congress and it's like, I think you know, that's just unbelievable to think about. Go out and talk to the American people about it. It's not only that Democrats like it, that independents like it, the majority of Republicans say that is a sensible idea. The people who have gotten so much from America, who have had the opportunity to build these great fortunes or who have inherited these great fortunes, paying just a little bit, 2%, pitching it back in so that our kids could have universal childcare, so that we could reduce the student loan debt burden, so that we could make a down payment on a Green New Deal, that's something that a lot of folks around the country think is a good idea. Our biggest problem... Get, I, 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 I take all your points. I'm not going to, and I'm not going to get into a legal discussion with a law professor, but there, there is also some discussion as to whether that will pass constitutional muster because oh. of past uh, rulings. But let's not get into uh, it. I, I don't want to open that door because, uh, because... Well, you just kind of opened it and closed it again. Right. But, but let's be clear. It's the host thing. I, that's right. I, I think it is constitutional. We've got a bunch of law professors that say that it is. But the, but the fundamental point I'm trying to make is when government aligns with the people, that's where you get your power. You, you, That's how it's supposed to work in a democracy. Um, one of the things that keeps it from working is, as you say, organized money, yep. special interests. Yep. Uh, you took a step this week to uh, change the way you're, raise, you're, you're, you're raising money for your mm -hmm. campaign. Um, and you said you're not going to ha uh, have any fundraisers with... Not the high-dollar fundraisers. I'm just not going to do that. Mm -hmm. But you have in the past. And, and you know, you wrote in the book how uncomfortable yeah. you were. This was back in 2014, before you were running for, uh, yeah. for, for president or even re-election, uh, uh, how uncomfortable you were with having to make these calls. Uh, I presume going to these events were uh, part of it. Um, but... What, what was it about it that made you uncomfortable? So, look, look at just the, how Washington has lined up today. The problem we've got is that money has too much influence in Washington. And we have a chance in a Democratic primary. This is just Democrats against Democrats. I'm not talking about when you're in a general, when the Republicans have rolled out all the big guns and they've got all their dark money and they've got all their but campaign But isn't the money just as corrupting in a general? Uh, well, but the problem is you can't disarm unilaterally. But in a primary, we have a fundamental issue as Democrats. And that is, what are we, what are we gonna accomplish in this primary? Are we gonna say that 
the way we want to do this is whoever can scoop up the most money and do the most TV ads, that's, that's how we want to roll this forward. Or are we going to use this as an opportunity to build the kind of grassroots foundation that will serve us in the 2020 election, when we go into the general, when they roll out all their stuff, what's our secret weapon? The fact that we have built a real foundation at the grassroots and not only help us win in 2020 the White House, when you build that kind of foundation, it helps you take back the House, the Senate, the state houses, the governor's mansions, yeah. and helps give you the momentum to take you into 2021 and make the kind of changes we need to make, like universal child care yeah, and, and student loans. Bernie Sanders raised uh, $10 million in his first week, and mm -hmm. um, you, you haven't been raising money at that clip. Are you worried that there's limited, there are limited dollars out there and that uh, you know, some will corner the market and, and leave you, you know, without the, I, I expect it's gonna take 100 to 150 million to get through the first four primaries and the California primary, wow. which begins the, the day of the uh, Iowa caucuses. You know, look, all I can do is get out and fight the fight I believe in, because here's our opportunity in a primary. I'm only gonna come this way once, David, as a first time candidate for president of the United States. And I want to run a campaign on principles and on ideas. And this is, this is a chance to do that, to be able to talk about a wealth tax, mm -hmm. that now this country is talking about a wealth tax and says, wait a minute, how come we don't do that? Why is it that those who've built big fortunes, the 75,000 richest families in, the, in America, don't have to pay a little something to help support the rest? This is our chance. I have to say I'm having an out-of-body experience because I'm watching a very, very disciplined candidate deliver her message in, in, uh, in despite know, my best efforts, uh, deliver but, her message in, in uh, no, I, looks, no, but I, look, I say that, I'm a, not saying that with a trace of. Uh, yes, but of, it's of, not. David, this is why I'm here. Yeah. This isn't about no, this I isn't do. about this is about why no, I'm here. I, I thoroughly I thoroughly uh, appreciate that. Let me ask you um, some questions that have that are a little bit off of the economic uh, issue. Uh, one is about ICE. You were one of the candidates who said you would disband it, uh, and uh, uh, that raised some eyebrows among some because it seemed like it was uh, an easy target for the president to try and caricature Democrats as soft on the border, not interested in border enforcement. You know, I went down to the border and um, I saw what basically looked like a giant Amazon warehouse, uh, except it was dirty and it smelled bad. And as I came in, I saw the cages of men on my left, you know, about 10 feet wide, roughly maybe 40 feet deep, toilet in the back corner, and men just packed into it. One cage next to another, next mm -hmm. to another. So the same thing with cages of women on my right. And then you walk into the big area, and there are the cages out in the middle of this giant warehouse with little girls, just little girls, nobody else in them, cages of little boys. And the way I came to see this is we have 
an obligation as a country to do two things. We need to keep ourselves safe, and we also need to live our values. Right. And when we are not doing that, and to me, any part of our government that cannot understand the difference in the risk posed between a criminal, a terrorist, and a 12-year-old girl is not doing either one of those things. Yeah, it's not making us safer, and it's not living up to our values. I think that means we need to reorganize the entire way we approach. But presumably, that agency and all agencies will reflect the values of the people who are elected by uh, the American people. I assume that if Elizabeth Warren were president, ICE would behave in a much different way well, than it's behaving right now. And also that you would have to establish some agency that does essentially what ICE does. That, that's my point, is that we need to think in terms of our security, but also in terms of our values, and that we need to organize along those principles and enforce our laws along those principles. The president has, uh, you know, you can, the Republican argument is now becoming clearer, which is you guys are all socialists. Uh, he's now comparing you to you guys to uh, Maduro, you know, the radical left. Um, any concerns about that? Look, the president is going to say whatever he thinks helps the president. That's the end of it. My, my question is, why do you keep chasing those tweets? Mm -hmm. I, why do you keep shining a light on them? Because it, it, this is not about our country. This is to talk about trying to make sure that our babies have childcare at a time when families are spending somewhere around 20% of their, of their pay on trying to get childcare, where in the majority of states in the United States, childcare for a little baby costs more than the tuition at the state university. So he'll say whatever he can to distract from that because he doesn't want to have to talk about that. And he doesn't want to have to talk about why our government, why the Republicans said, let's give away a trillion and a half dollars to billionaires, to millionaires, to giant corporations, instead of making an investment in childcare or in student I loans. I was curious the other day, uh, Senator Sanders uh, kind of demurred when he was asked if Maduro qualifies as a dictator do you share that reticence? No, I've already said it multiple times. He's a dictator. And we should work with our allies to put as much pressure as we can on him to support the opposition. We should be there for humanitarian relief, and that means medicine and food, but not as a pretext for military intervention. Um, we need to support the people of Venezuela as best we can and work with our allies to prevent an unfolding humanitarian disaster. You, uh, you're on the Armed Services Committee. I am. Uh, and most people know your, your economic outlook is very, very well known. Mm -hmm. is, there an, is there a Warren doctrine? Do you, is there a way that you look at uh, foreign policy and national security issues that would be distinctively your, so your actually, imprint? I've actually written about this and spoken about this now uh, multiple times. And I, I, let me describe parts of it. You know, I was in Afghanistan uh, with John McCain a year ago last summer. I, I think it may have been John's last trip. 
uh, overseas to visit our troops and, and uh, the country. And being in Afghanistan and seeing what it meant 16 years later mm-hmm. that, um, that the government of Afghanistan controlled only about 58% of the land, uh, that it didn't have the support of the people, that the poppy crops, heroin crops were uh, bigger than ever, that the border with Pakistan was porous, that there were multiple terrorist groups being supported from outside influences, reminded me of how we ought to think about using our troops. You know, you may know, all three of my brothers I do. Uh, joined the military. My oldest brother was career military, uh, 288 combat missions in Vietnam. Uh, uh, John was stationed overseas. David uh, trained as a combat medic. Our military is, is amazing, and they will do anything we ask them to do. But I believe that before we commit them to action, we have to ask ourselves two questions. Is this a military problem, or is it a problem that should be dealt with through diplomacy, through economic pressure? Mm -hmm. Is it something we should be doing alone? Is it something we should be doing with our allies? And the second question is, before we go in, what exactly is our plan to get Mm -hmm. out? Mm -hmm. What constitutes success and how do we leave at the other end? I think we need to ask those hard questions before we commit our military anywhere. So you, it sounds like you feel like it's time yeah. to bring them back. What, it, what if the Taliban uh, is resurgent there and, and given uh, their history of, of, of mistreatment of women and uh, harboring extremism and so on, um, is that a, a price uh, worth paying to bring them back? Or, or, or are you, and this is a perfectly respectable argument that there are limits to what the U.S. can do there. So, so the principal way I think about this is this is not the United States obligation alone. And that the first question we ask is what threat is posed by whoever it is that's in Afghanistan, whichever militant group or terrorist group, and how do the rest of the nations, our allies, work with us, how do we work with them to keep that threat minimized, to, to keep mm-hmm. that threat away from our countries? And this is, this is a part of what troubles me so deeply about where we are right now, that we need our allies. Our allies need us. We are stronger when we work with our allies. It's the, the ultimate force multiplier. We need to see how together We all need to work to combat terrorism. We all need to work on humanitarian relief to make sure that all human beings are respected. And we need to work on support for people locally so that that they have the opportunity to build a government that works for them. The president is in uh, Vietnam uh, this uh, week uh, with Kim Jong-un. Do you have hopes for that? You know, look, I always want to see the United States do well. That's that's where we start this. 
But doing a photo op with a dictator and uh, at least opening the possibility that he's going to give something up just so he can walk out and wave what he claims to be as some victory is a genuine threat. You know, he walked out of the last one, uh, having met with, with uh, Kim, uh, both giving him exactly what the family had wanted for generations, and that is the respectability of standing next to the President of the United States, the credibility yeah, worldwide. Was a big, was a big that thing. was a negotiating chit that was ours, and he just gave it up. Mm -hmm. Trump gave it up for what? For nothing. Right. And we gave China something they wanted, and that was having the president of the United States describe our military exercises, important military with exercises South, with, South at, with South Korea, with Japan as provocative. That's not the position of the United States and certainly not the position of our allies and does not strengthen our hand. So we walk away from that with the president claiming that he had solved the nuclear problem with Kim. Well, obviously, that turned out not to be true. But actually having given up some pieces so you're worried of about a repeat, a repeat of that. I, I, don't, I, I really want to get to your uh, story because I don't think it's particularly well known. But you grew up in Oklahoma. I did. Uh, your, your dad had a variety of jobs, a janitor, he was a salesman and so on. You write compellingly about the fact that he had a heart attack uh -huh. and uh, lost his job as a result of that. Your mother, who hadn't been working, uh, was a homemaker, the four of you. She had to go back to work. And I was wondering how much of that was the reason that you were drawn later in life to, to, to this bankruptcy issue and this sort of financial uh, rules of the road issue that you've made your own? So it, it probably starts about in middle school when my brothers are all gone and my daddy had the heart attack. And um, I still remember my mother and I both, I, we thought he was going to die. He didn't. He made it home. But we lost our family station wagon. Um, and we... Um, I, my mom would put me to bed at night and I would hear them talk. And it's where I learned words like mortgage and foreclosure. And I remember the day that I walked into their bedroom and my mother's there in her slip and her stocking. She's got the dress laid out on the bed, the one that only comes out, weddings, funerals, and graduations. And she's walking back and forth and she's saying, we will not lose this house. We will not lose this house. We will not lose this house. She was 50 years old. She'd never worked outside the home. And she was terrified. And finally, she, she wrestled that dress on. She put on her high heels. She blew her nose. She walked to the Sears Roebuck and got a minimum wage job. And that job saved our house and it saved our family. Now, for a long time, I thought that was a story just about my mother, how she showed me that no matter how scared you are, you reach down, you find the place, you pull it up and you do what has to be done. And then I came to understand it's the story of millions of families, people who 
reach down, find what it takes, and do what has to be done to take care of themselves and their families. It's only years later that I came to understand. It's also a story about government because when I was a girl and this happened, a minimum wage job in America would support a family mm -hmm. of three, paid a mortgage, kept the utilities, put food on the table. Today, a minimum wage job in America, full time, will not keep a mama and a baby out of poverty, won't rent a two bedroom apartment in America. And the difference is a decision made in Washington. So when I was a girl, the question, you can actually go back and look at it, the question was, when they're setting the minimum wage, Congress, was what's it take a family of three to get a toehold mm -hmm. in America's middle class, to get that chance? Today, I sit in those hearings, and the question is, what improves the profitability of giant corporations? I want a government that doesn't work for giant corporations. I want one that works for little families like mine. You came here to Washington. You got a scholarship. You kind of went behind your parents' back and started exploring how you could get a scholarship. Uh, and you came here. Your mother was uncertain about it, thought you should get that's, a that's husband. That's diplomatic. Yeah. Yes. Uh -huh. and, uh, but, and you came here to, to George Washington for uh -huh. a couple of years. Um, and then you left because... I a fell in high love. school sweetheart. Uh, you know, I, I came here, um, I had just turned 17 when I came to college. I spent two years here. I had never been, I think, north or east of Oklahoma when I end up in Washington, D.C. And then I'm back in Oklahoma. Uh, I'm just 19, and the first boy I'd ever dated, and the first boy who'd ever dumped me. Uh, dropped back into my life one weekend. He's older than I am. And um, he had finished school. He had a job. was ready to get married, and he picked me. And it took me a nanosecond to say yes. And I dropped out of school, and that was it. Got married. This comes under the heading of what you know now that you didn't know then. You, uh, you, you worked your way through college. Yeah. You had a child... Like a couple of years later, you worked your way through, and then another, you worked yeah. your way through college, yeah. you worked your way baby through school, baby law school, school. Uh -huh. you tried to manage all of that, and then your marriage fell apart, and you yeah. were uh, a single mother for a while. Um, how much did, does that inform your, your, your outlook on, on public policy? So I'll tell you a story. So here I am at home with a baby. When I got that crazy idea to head off to law school. And um, man, you know me, I'm organized. I figured all out what I have to do and I apply and do all the pieces. I figure out how I'm gonna pay for it. It's a public school so I can do this. That's an opportunity. What's the part that nearly hangs me up is childcare. So I'm down to like the last week before school starts, and I haven't been able to find childcare. Every place I've gone, either it smells funny or it's not a nice place or it has a waiting list a mile long or it's way more than I can afford. And I get down right to the end and I'm seriously thinking, 
I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm, I'm not going to be able to start school next Tuesday when it starts because I can't find someone to take care of Amelia. Fast forward just a little bit. I ultimately find someone, it all works out. I, I get my first tenure track teaching job. This is a dang big deal. I love it. And here I am, now I got two little ones um, and I'm trying to wrestle every part of this. I bake cookies for the bake sale and I'm teaching my classes and I'm bathing kids and putting dinner on the table and starting my class prep at 11 o'clock at night along with doing the laundry. It's hard, it's exhausting, I can do all that. And then the babysitter quits. And it all just turns upside down. And in the space of a few months, I cycle through all of it. Childcare, a different, a neighbor, another childcare outfit. And one night, my Aunt B calls me. She's 78 years old. She's living in Oklahoma City. She's a widow. And she says, how are you doing, sweetie? And I said, um, fine. And then I burst into tears, and I said, I'm going to quit my job. Because I just couldn't do it all. I couldn't do it without the childcare piece. I just couldn't. And Aunt B said the words that changed my life. I can't get there tomorrow, but I'll be there on Thursday. And she arrived with seven suitcases and a Pekingese named Buddy and stayed for 16 years. Yeah. But here's the deal. Not everybody has an Aunt B. Here's the deal. Most people don't have an Aunt right. B. Without my Aunt B, I'd have just been knocked off the track. Without that last minute making it, I've been knocked off on school. How many women of my generation, of my daughter's generation, how many women today and how many men, how many daddies don't get to finish their education, don't get the first job, don't get to take on the promotion because they can't make the childcare piece mm -hmm. work, because it costs too much, it's just too hard. When I got the chance to put this childcare proposal forward that says zero to five universal, it's there for everybody. It's childcare, it's early childhood learning, it's making that investment in our little ones that will pay off over time. It was a little like being able to pay back. Pay back, the, yeah. I have to ask you about another family issue that you're probably sick of talking about, but this issue of your lineage and the Native American uh, issue uh, that has dogged you since your first Senate race. Uh, you, um, you, you, you parried it then. There have been all kinds of reports about it, including going through your hirings and asserting that there was no favoritism paid to you. But the question that I, I've never understood mm -hmm. is why? why? Why did you, in 1986, fill out on your, I guess it was your law license or something, an mm -hmm. application, uh, American Indian? Why did you check, check those boxes or why were those boxes checked for you? I, just as a personal matter, um, what was it that motivated you uh, to do that, because obviously that's a very small part of of your of your lineage, you know, one thirty second or something. So why why did you do it? So, you know, like you said, I grew up in Oklahoma. I learned about my family the same way most people learn about their families, you know, from my mom and my dad and my aunts and my uncles, and 
based on what I learned growing up and the fact that I love my family, decades ago, I sometimes identified as Native American. It's now, kind of an homage to your, your, your grandmother. It's, and it, it's, it's, it, there, it never had anything to do with any job that I ever got. That's been fully documented. So Even the university so, has kind of fudged and used you for their own purposes. It never had, it never had anything to do with my getting a job. Mm -hmm. it, it, um, even so, um, I shouldn't have done it. I'm not a person of color. Uh, I am not a citizen of a tribe. Uh, Cherokee tribe was. I'm not a citizen of were, a tribe. We're, we're, we're angry about it. But. Um, what I try to do is be a good friend to Native Americans. And that's why, for example, I have a housing bill that fully funds housing on, on tribal reservations. I think it's an important piece of what we do. Ultimately, I think that what we're doing right now won't be about my family in 2020. I think it's going to be about the millions of families across right. this country. You put, you, but it, but, but people look at presidential ca candidates and so they want to know who they are. And you put out a video in the fall mm -hmm. that went into this in some detail. This is what uh, angered the, some of the, the tribal folks but, or tribal leadership. Um, but it was like, it was. Uh, uh, something that the president just picked up. He he he's branded you with this Pocahontas thing and so on. Yeah. Did you was that a mistake to put that video out? I I can't go back. Um, all I can do is go forward. You and can't go back, but you can learn from it. And I think I have. Uh huh. And did you learn about what not to do in dealing with Donald Trump? You know, look, Donald Trump is going to do what Donald Trump is going to do. Um, for me. This is really about the fights I'm going to keep fighting going forward. Um, right now, I see this as a fight about what kind of a country we're going to be. Are we going to be a country where we turn on each other? Are we going to let Donald Trump continue to stir us up and pit one group against the other? That's what the wall down at the southern border is all about. It's not about security. It's about building a monument to hate. It's about stirring people up against immigration. Are we going to be a nation that turns people against people, working people against working people? Are we actually going to be a nation that says we're going to embrace each other's fights and we're going to make this country live up to our best values, that we're going to make this country work, not just for the rich and the powerful, but for all of us? This is a your book is very compelling, but the thing that brought tears to my eyes was your account of Otis, yeah. the aforementioned Otis, your dog, and him passing away right before you, uh, before you got elected to the Senate. You have a new dog, Bailey. We did. And dogs are, like, important to you. Yeah, they are. Uh, Harry Truman once said, you know, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog, so you've got a head start here. That's right. You know, it, it is. Bruce and I have always had dogs. And um, Otis was a big part of my life because Otis was there from the beginning when I came down to Washington to set up the consumer agency. Right. It was Otis who came along. Bruce is the one who still had to go <laughs> back and forth. And when I got into the Senate campaign, 
I never run for anything. I never seen any part of this, never done any part of it. And it was Otis. Evan Otis who was, was, yeah. Who was always there. And I'll tell you, sometimes I'd be like on aggravating phone calls, you know, I'd have my That happens in, in this in business, the, yeah. That's right. And what I do is I sit on the floor and rub Otis. Mm -hmm. I'd calm Otis. Yeah. And I take Otis out for a walk. Bruce and I would walk around Freshbone, yeah. which is near our house, with Otis. And there's, for me, there's something about a dog that just kind of grounds you yeah. in life. And whatever today seems noisy and aggravating, it's a dog that count, brings you back as, and gets you, you back know, in the fun. I've got my own. Mac, I know you do. So count me in. Okay. I, I, I agree with you. You know, uh, just as we finish, um, you, uh, uh, there was this interesting thing that happened on the floor of the Senate uh, when the uh, Jeff Sessions yeah. uh, nomination came up when, for attorney general. And you tried to read a letter from uh, the late Coretta Scott mm -hmm. King the widow of Martin Luther King, that she had written in uh, opposition to his appointment to the court in, uh, in the mid-'80s. Written to the Senate. Written to the Senate. Uh -huh. And, uh, and this, had been part of the record this, back then. This was not greeted well by your colleagues. And finally, the majority leader uh, stood up, and, and, and he said something that it seems to me may be a coda on your whole career and on your whole life. What did he say? Uh, he said that uh, I had been warned about doing this. I had been given an explanation. Nevertheless, she persisted. Yeah. Well, yours is a, definitely a story of persisting. It is. And um, always a pleasure to be with you, Senator. Thank you. Good to see Good you. Good to see you. This is a special place here. It is. Because it started in your head. <laughs> <laughs> and is now a real living, breathing yep. uh, institution of government. Mm -hmm. um, this is kind of what put you on the policy map. You wrote these great books and so on. But this idea was one that was circulating around Washington. Tell me about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So you remember the basic problem because you were also there when this came to life. I didn't think it up, though. Well, but the basic problem was people getting cheated on their mortgages, on their credit cards, on a lot of their consumer borrowing. And there were seven different federal agencies, all of whom owned a little piece of supposed to enforce the law. And when seven different folks are supposed to do it, nobody was doing it. So the idea was, when the crash came, don't just pass a couple of laws to say, don't do that horrible thing and don't do that bad thing right. to people. It's, let's make structural change. And the structural change was, let's gather up all of those responsibilities and let's put them in one place and let's give that agency the responsibility to make sure that consumers don't get cheated, give them the power to be able to make that happen. Because all these other agencies were cross-pressured. They had other things that they were... Oh, in fact, the outfit that used to be in this building used to compete. There were two bank regulators. You know what they used to do? They used to go to the big banks and say, hey, listen, let us be your regulator, because that's how their budget would be mm -hmm, determined. Mm -hmm. We will regulate less than the other guy. So there was this competition to be the weakest, flimsiest, 
most friendly regulator of all, and uh, that's how we ended up in a huge financial crisis. So President Obama was a fan of this idea. Yeah, he was. And, um, and asked you to help set it up. You, uh -huh. you originally were in like a warehouse or something, right? <laughs> With that's your, right. With your bunch of renegades. So, you know, that was the amazing thing, to be able to build this with the support of the president. I still remember the first time I was invited to the White House after this had been signed into law. And I mean, it's just a piece of paper. There's no real thing. And the very first question that the president asked me, he said, is it going to be strong enough to make a difference? And I said, yeah. We got most of it, Mr. President, and he said, well, but we didn't get this part. He was totally into the weeds on mm -hmm. it, but he understood. As was his want. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so you said it was strong enough. Tell me what it, it's done. So what this agency has done is it's been the cop on the beat, and that means it's actually been there to force big financial institutions when they cheat people not just to pay a little fine, slap on the wrist, but to actually make them send the money back to the people they cheated. So far, this agency has forced these big banks to return more than $12 billion directly to people they cheated. A second thing it does is it's got a consumer complaint hotline. And it turns out it's really easy. You should tell everybody, cfpb.gov. And you can go on when you think you get cheated for $12 dollars by your bank and it just chaps you about it or you've got some mortgage lender who's keeping your four thousand dollar down payment on your house even though the mortgage has fallen through whatever it is you can go there and the cfpb basically stamps it sends it off to the creditor your complaint and then monitors that you get a response yeah and a yeah, that lot was one of, people, of your big things, right? That's we, right. We can have a consumer hotline, but let's make sure that something happens when people That's exactly call right. And so there have been a whole lot of people who've been able to get their problems resolved through this. And here's another part. It's like a constant feedback loop to the agency so that they know, whoa, looks like there's a problem out in uh, Nevada and what's happening here and uh, maybe they're preying on military families because all of a sudden it's starting to show up in the complaints. That's useful information that keeps this agency tied to its original mission, which is to be there on behalf of families across this country. So I'm, I'm looking in your eyes, as the light in your eyes yeah. as you describe this like the proud parent you are, uh, and it occurs to me, I, uh, you were, um, you wanted to be the director of this oh, agency. Yeah. You bet. And um, you, because you do engender strong reaction, and I think a lot from the industry, um, they, uh, in, the, in the dealings that went on to get the thing through, that didn't happen. But I'm, I'm listening to you speak, and I'm wondering, what if you had been the permanent director, you, you almost certainly would not have run for the Senate oh, in Massachusetts. Yeah. No, I'd have stayed and done this because that would have been my chance to serve. That would have been the way that I could have made a difference. When I couldn't make a difference that way, I found another way, and that was running for the Senate. So what is the, uh, what is the status of the CFPB now? Because the administration has not been all that enthused 
<laughs> about its mission and, in fact, sent uh, Mick Mulvaney over when he was the budget director um, to kind of get things under control yeah. uh, over here. Is the day-to-day stuff that you just described still going on? So, look, Mulvaney made it clear. He didn't like the agency from before he was ever asked to come over and run it. That's why he was picked. He had uh, said terrible things about the agency, and he came here. One of the first things he wanted to do was get a different mission statement because he thought the agency shouldn't just be for consumers. It should be out there to serve banks. And he tried as best he could to make that a part of what the agency is doing. I look at it this way. The agency's still there. It's still a cop on the beat. Maybe not as strong as the cop who was there before. Maybe spending a little too much time (laughs) in the donut shop. But the consumer complaint hotline is still there. It's still working. And the basic structure of the agency, the fundamental idea that in this big world where giant banks are calling most of the shots, that there still is one part of government that has one job, and that is to look out for American consumers, that part still works. You know something? I've, I've had this theory for a long time about why it is that not just the big banks dislike this agency. Uh, I can mention 12 billion reasons they dislike it, right? That they've had to return money to consumers and had lots of other scams that they just decided maybe they better not do, even though they'd be very profitable. But why is it some other folks don't like it? I think because it's an example of how government can work for the people, because that's what this agency does every day. You know, you one of your celebrated exchanges was with the CEO of Wells Fargo yeah. uh, when they were um, they were found to be, have let millions of fraudulent cards and checking accounts opening them up so they could charge. Yeah, they cheated uh, their customers. They charged uh, fees. Yes, they they cheated their customers, and you uh, demanded that uh, he resign and right. suggested he should be prosecuted. And it made me uh, wonder, when you look back at the, the early days after the financial crisis, was, was not enough done in your mind to, uh, to, to prosecute people, to hold them responsible? Oh, look, I had this fight over and over with Tim Geithner uh, that I felt like there just wasn't enough accountability. That those guys came in, (laughs) they cheated families, they sold them mortgages that were like grenades with the pins pulled out. Then they boxed all that up and put it out into the entire economy until they literally brought our economy to its knees. They cost millions of people their homes, their jobs, their savings. Um, And at the end of the day, They just weren't held accountable. And, you know, that's not how the world is supposed to work. For a family that that got caught up, for a family that has, you know, a kid that ends up with caught with a few ounces of pot or some pills, Mm -hmm. man, there's a criminal justice system that grinds them through. But the CEO of a giant financial institution can keep funding uh, money laundering for drug cartels, can, can keep perpetuating frauds on the American people, and they end up with bonuses. 
that's not the argument that's back not then a was justice the, system the, that works. The argument back then was that the fragility of the system no. was such that it that 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 was that would have been one brick too much on the load. You know, I I heard Tim Geithner make that argument over and over and over, yeah. and I just disagree with him. I think that had Geithner been more willing to be more aggressive with the banks, had the bank regulators been more aggressive and had some personal responsibility for the CEOs, not just for the shareholders, for the CEOs, I think that we would have said as a country, that means that the justice system works, that it applies to everyone, and that just didn't happen. Let me ask you a different question. Across the street is the old executive yeah. office building, and what a across, beauty. right across the street from that is the White House. Uh-huh. Um, Donald Trump probably gets quite a bit of, of criticism in the precincts in which you travel uh-huh. uh, and among the candidates and within the Democratic base. Uh, he still has 40%, a consistent kind of 40% uh-huh. of the vote. Uh, why do you think people uh, support him? My, my view of this is that our job now for the next year is to make the case for how we can do better, how we can build a country that lives up to its best values, how we can build a country that works not just for the CEOs of Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo, but a country that works for everyone. But there is this argument that, well, forget them. There's a bigger base out there uh, that that is not supportive of the president, and let's fish in that pond. You know, I'm not a pundit. I'm going to leave that to you. But the way I see it is we got to reach out to all of America. You know, I have three brothers back in Oklahoma. One of the three is a Democrat. (laughs) Do the math on that. But all three of my brothers and me, we share a lot of the same values and we want a lot of the same things for our kids. We want a lot of the same things, like making sure that our kids don't get crushed by student loan debt or that everybody gets access to health care that they can afford. Uh, We want to believe in that America, and we want to help build that America. I think that's what the next year is about, our chance to do that. So you think there are people out there who are gettable, who might have voted uh, for the president last time? I, I think that we have to reach out to all of America. I think that the politics of division are not working for us. We've got to make the case for what we see as the opportunity in America to create to create chances. You know, I'm a kid who graduated from a college that cost $50 a semester. That's opportunity. My daddy ended up as a janitor, but his little girl got a chance to be a public school teacher, a college professor, a United States senator, a candidate for president of the United States. That's opportunity. I've lived opportunity. I think America can invest in opportunity, not just for some of our kids, but for all of our kids. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. That was great. Good. That was good. Great. Yeah. Good. It really is something to stand here. I haven't been here in forever. Yeah. And there it is. I remember when we were trying to figure out the letter CFPB, 
and what it should look like. <laughs> and, and is that it? Is that what it yeah. was supposed to look like? that was it. Yeah. That was what it was supposed to look like. Yeah. So, um, you remember that to set up the agency, that I was an assistant to the president. Yes, uh-huh. And so it meant I had a pass. Right. And when it was cold, <laughs> I'd walk through the White House yeah. to get around to EOB and on down and off to the offices. And one day I was walking through the White House by myself and down on the ground floor and the president was walking the other way and he stopped and he said, how's my agency? <laughs> and I said, it's making a difference. It's going to make a real difference in the lives of people all across this country. And he said, yeah. He said, that's why we're in this. Exactly. Yeah. It's pretty great. amazing. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.